0: Thank you, Norm. Um, A couple weeks away uh, is the Journey Wall exercise. I wanted to just remind you of that before we get rolling here. Uh, On Saturday the 28th, we'll meet here. All are invited. The Journey Wall is uh, an exercise where we look at the history of the church and uh, look at trends and uh, values and that sort of thing. And it's very helpful in terms of thinking about where God is leading us. So I would encourage you, if you're able, 8.30 right here on Saturday the 28th. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for how it speaks to us. Help us to listen, help us to really desire to hear from you today. I pray that you would use the things that you have shown me, use me as your instrument, um, and I pray that it would be uh, your voice and your truth that we hear, I pray that your truth would penetrate our hearts, draw us closer to your great heart, and let us live lives that truly honor you in Jesus name. Amen. Tina had a wonderful, godly grandma, and we all knew her as noni Noni uh, Noni died twenty five years ago in the midst of a presidential Primary season, and the reason I mention that is because Noni was a very staunch Republican, very conservative. Uh, she was a member of the Republican Party and a repeated delegate at at uh, Republican uh, conventions and so uh, we got word when we were on a vacation that Noni had gone into the hospital, and so uh, we diverted our route to go and see her, and uh, uh, that very day, her favorite candidate, Patrick Buchanan, had won a primary, and Tina wanted to encourage her with the news that her candidate was doing well, and she said, Noni, got to tell you, Buchanan won the primary today, and Noni held up a feeble hand and said, just Jesus. Just talk about Jesus. We find ourselves living in a culture that isn't just Jesus. We find ourselves living in a culture of Jesus and, and you can fill in the blank, Jesus and whatever. We all agree that people need Jesus, but some people don't stop there. You need Jesus and some of our Charismatic brothers and sisters say you need Jesus and some manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That you begin with Jesus and you graduate to the Holy Spirit. You need Jesus and the gift of tongues. Uh, Some people very convinced of their theology would say you need Jesus and dispensationalism. Others equally convinced would say you need Jesus and anything but dispensationalism. Some people would say you need Jesus and spiritual disciplines. Some people would say you need Jesus and the right social issues. Some would say you need Jesus and the right political issues. Now, you could come up with your own list just by looking around and seeing the things that are important to other people you know, other Christians you know, perhaps Don't get me wrong. I think spiritual disciplines are important. I encourage people to practice spiritual disciplines. And there are political issues that are important to me, and any candidate that doesn't support them won't ever get my vote. But I need to keep those things in perspective. Those things are outflows of my relationship with Jesus. And I can't ever get to the point where those things become so important to me that they serve as some sort of litmus test of orthodoxy. Because if I'm not careful, I can find myself adding to the gospel. People have been adding to the gospel for a long time. The apostle Paul faced that. You'll remember in our study in First Timothy that in chapter 1, Paul faced people that were saying it was Jesus and hidden knowledge the gnostics believed in this hidden knowledge and we've we've got insights that other people don't have you need Jesus and our hidden knowledge in that same chapter there were people who were speculating about jewish genealogies and what they mean you need Jesus and jewish genealogies you need Jesus and these speculations paul often fought The Judaizers. We see this in other letters of his. Uh, People who said, You need Jesus and the law. Uh, People are okay if they circumcise their baby boys, if they keep to the Jewish dietary laws. You need Jesus and the law. Jesus and. A culture of Jesus and instead of a culture of just Jesus. It's a human tendency. Always wanting to add something as a litmus test of orthodoxy. Ending up living as though the simple, beautiful gospel of Jesus that we celebrated at his table this morning is not enough. I remember a course I took in seminary. Steve, you may have taken that same course. It was a required course when I went through. It was Introduction to Evangelism. Still required. Good for them. I remember one day in class, the professor uh, went to the whiteboard and asked us, what is necessary for salvation? What is necessary for salvation? Took out a marker. And started writing things down as students called those things out. If we said it, he wrote it. And in five minutes, he had the board filled with things that are additions to the gospel. Seminary students listing things that are additions to the life-saving gospel of Christ that they felt were necessary for salvation. And in the midst of a culture that didn't find Jesus quite enough, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Jesus is all we need. Find your contentment in him alone. Paul begins with a reminder that is beginning to sound familiar. We touched on it last week. We'll touch again this week. It's, it's verse 2, the second part of verse 2. Verse numbers are not inspired. They were written quite some time later. But Paul says in verse 2b, Teach and urge these things. And you may say, What things? Well, Paul would say, the things I've just been writing about. Teach and urge these things. That phrase, these things, occurs seven times here in First Timothy. I'm going to read through them real quickly. See if you can discern anything they have in common, okay? These things. Chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, I am writing these things so that you'll know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Chapter 4, verse 6, Put these things before the brothers. Chapter 4, verse 11, Command and teach these things. Chapter 4, verse 15, practice these things so that all may see your progress. Chapter 5, verse 7, command these things so they may be without reproach. Chapter 6, verse 2, teach and urge these things. Chapter 6, verse 11, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. See any thread running through that? What's common to all of those things? They're all about living our faith. They're all about living what we say we believe. And that, I believe, is the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate in this word he uses so many times, godliness. Godliness. I believe that that living our faith out day to day lies at the heart of this thing Paul calls godliness. I think the way he uses that word godliness in 1 Timothy is shorthand for applied faith, a life centered on the gospel of Christ, a Godward life. And some of you may say, Ken, you are beginning to sound like a broken record. And some of you might say, what's a broken record? (laughs) We have at least a generation that has grown up without turntables, without ever having played a record. What a pity. How many of you have never played a record on a turntable? I just want to see hands. Never played a record on a turntable? Wow. Wow. You've missed out. Okay, so a phonograph, record... 33 and a third RPM, 33 and a third revolutions per minute. How many grooves are in a 33 and a third record? How many grooves are in a 33 and a third record? Anybody? One. (laughs) One. It just goes around and around and around, and you get closer and closer to the center all the time. That's the idea behind it. What happens when a record is broken? A record is broken gets a scratch on. Someone drags the needle across that groove in a couple of places maybe. And it gets scratched or broken. And when it hits that scratch, it jumps back to a place it had been at very shortly before. And so on a broken record, you end up saying the same thing again and again and again. And that's, I believe, what I might be doing because it's what Paul's doing here Paul just keeps coming back to this idea of godliness again and again. He uses that word nine times here in 1 Timothy. Timothy needs to command and teach these things pertaining to godliness, Paul says, because there are those in the church at Ephesus who are taking the focus off of living a life surrendered to Christ alone. Now, we started hearing about that in chapter 1, verse 3. Flip back to chapter one, verse three. Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And he uses the same construction here in chapter six to talk about the problem that's going on there in Ephesus. Paul describes the problem in verses three to five. And I am just realizing this morning that the version of the ESV that you have is slightly, slightly different from the one that I've got, so let me pick up the one here. Take a look with me at verses three through five of chapter six. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, same as chapter one, verse three, right? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. There's the problem. And let's just take a look at the flow of Paul's argument in these verses. The problem begins with bad teaching. Verse three, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. Literally, if anyone teaches different, that's bad English, right? That's great Greek. Uh, If anyone teaches different, it's a compound word. Teach different, one word. If anyone teaches different from all of the things I've been trying to get across to you, they've got a problem. And, And that word different, the part of the compound word that is different is the word hetero, which we recognize as Different, right? Uh, Not the word pseudo, which means false. And so you'll hear people talking about the false teachers in Ephesus. They may have been false teachers, but the point Paul's making here is they're different teachers. They're teaching stuff that is different, different enough to get your eyes off of Christ and onto whatever hot button they're pushing. And so Paul says the way you know it, is that the person who's teaching that doesn't agree with two very important things. One, the sound words of our Lord Jesus, and two, the teaching of godliness. So this idea of sound words of our Lord Jesus, what Jesus said about his identity, about what he said about his mission, and what he did for us, in other words, Put the focus on Jesus, not on these other issues. Keep Jesus at the center. Always come back to Jesus in your teaching. So you need to pay attention to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching of godliness. And this idea of godliness that we've touched on many times before is a Godward life a life focused on applying our faith, a life centered on the gospel, a life uh, tied to obedience and not just to accumulating more knowledge. It's about obedience. And so our teaching needs to center on Christ and needs to lead to obedience. And if it doesn't do that, Paul says, it's bad teaching. This is his first point. Uh, Bad teaching then, second point, comes from a bad heart, he says in verse 4a. Uh, It's not just flawed logic, it's a bad heart. Here's what's going on, Paul says, if anyone teaches different, he is, verse 4 He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. There. Now try saying that to someone who is teaching stuff that's getting the focus off of Jesus and see what they say to you. They'll tell you, you're wrong. You're wrong. No one's going to admit to those things, but Paul says that's what's going on when people take the focus off of the gospel of Christ. Paul's pretty hard on people who are teaching things that take our focus off the gospel. We might put it into the vernacular and say, Paul's saying, those people are just messed up. They're messed up. If you're teaching in a church and you're making a major issue of anything but Jesus and how to live out your faith in him, those two things, you're messed up. Paul begins by describing the problem uh, about bad teaching and says bad teaching comes from a bad heart. And then the third point in his logic here is bad teaching from a bad heart leads to bad results. Chapter 4 or chapter 6, verses 4b and 5a. So in other words, here's what it leads to when you have messed up teachers in the church. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction in the company of people depraved in mind and deprived of truth. In other words, having messed up teachers leads to a messed up church. And at the root of it all, verse 5b, Paul says, behind the bad teachers, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. They misunderstand what godliness is for. They think it has to do with what they think or imagine to be true. And that word imagine implies thinking something to be true without particular certainty. In other words, they're convinced of something, not because they have checked it out scripturally, but because that's what their friends are saying. They've gotten caught up in thinking that belongs to a group of friends they hang out with and what they think is that godliness is a means to an end. And Paul says that's the root problem. They misunderstand what godliness is for. What have we learned about godliness over these past few months in First Timothy? The theme keeps coming up. It occurs nine times. It refers to how the gospel shows up in life It's about an applied faith, a Godward life, a life fully surrendered to God. Uh, Paul talks to Timothy in chapter three, verse 16 about this godliness. He describes what he calls the mystery of godliness. In chapter three, verse 16, he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Okay, I'm about to unpack godliness for you, he says, and what does he do in in the rest of that verse? He talks about Jesus. Talks about Jesus who was so surrendered to his Father's will that he went to the cross for us. A life surrendered to him. That's what godliness is about. It's not good for anything, Paul says. It's good in itself, it's an end in itself. You don't use godliness to get something else. In fact, godliness is the only reasonable response to the grace of God that is offered to us. A knee bent, a heart yielded, a life surrendered to God in Christ. And the problem is that there were people in the church there who didn't understand that, and they were teaching different. Paul goes on from describing the problem to sharing the truth that we need to focus on. Look at verses 6 through 10 of chapter six, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul tells us what the truth of the matter is. The truth is that there is great gain to be found in godliness if it comes with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What's that look like? Take a look at verse 7 again. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. It recognizes that the things that we have are all gifts of grace. We brought nothing with us. It's all been given to us by a good and gracious God. And What's more, it recognizes that we're only stewards of those incredible gifts of grace that God has given to us. We don't get to take them with us when we leave this world. And they're only given for a season. We're stewards of these things while we are here. It's like, like playing Monopoly. Uh, whatever you gain all goes back in the box at the end of the game. So there's this fundamental misunderstanding of godliness that lies at the heart of the problem. There's a a misunderstanding of this life centered on the gospel. If people think they can get something out of it, that they can use it for something, they're barking up the wrong tree. What things do people think they can get out of a life centered on the gospel? Well, here in 1 Timothy 6, it's money. And he spent some time talking about money then uh, for the rest of this section. People were preaching the gospel for profit, banking on getting some of that double honor that Paul talked about in chapter 5, verse 17. There are other things that people try to use the gospel to get. We can probably think of a few. If you flip on the TV on Sunday morning, you'll find that some people are peddling a gospel of health and wealth, trying to get something for themselves, trying to encourage their listeners to get something out of godliness, that God wants you healthy, that God wants you wealthy, when in reality, God wants you holy. Some people use uh, the gospel just to get their way, Manipulating God's word to support their position on something. Some people use the gospel to try to gain approval. One of the dangers of growing up in a Christian home is that we raise children who, who we want to teach to obey us, who we want to have uh, concern about pleasing us as their parents. And sometimes what can happen is kids can learn the behaviors without connecting to a relationship with the Savior. And you can end up raising well-behaved kids who don't know the Lord. We need to make sure that they're getting the message that they need to trust in Jesus for themselves. Sometimes people try to use the gospel to gain respect. They want to look like good citizens, and the gospel helps. Some people use the gospel to try to get advancement Christian principles can get you ahead in some circles, and so they use it for that. But none of those things are what godliness is for. It's not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. It's a response to the grace of God. You don't use godliness to get anything. Paul says in verse 8 that if you have godliness and the basic necessities of life, you have all you need to live a life that is fully significant. If you have a life wholly surrendered to God and you have enough to keep you going from day to day as you do that, you've got all you need. You've got direction and you've got provision and you can be content with that. So here's the question that we can all ask. What is my contentment based on? What is my contentment based on? based on if my contentment is based on the things that i have or the things i hope to have then a few things are true of me one is i'm not recognizing the giver two is i'm not recognizing the stewardship that he's given me and number 3 i'm headed for trouble I'm not recognizing the giver what do you have paul writes to the corinthians that you did not receive answer Nothing. You received it all as a gracious gift of a gracious giver. If your contentment is based on the things you have or are hoping to have, you're not recognizing this giver. And you're not recognizing the stewardship that's been given to you as you use these things for his glory. It's only been given to us for a brief season. It all goes back in the box. And what's more, Paul says you're headed for trouble. Verses 9 And 10, those who desire to get rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. They Wandered from the very faith itself And they have inflicted, self-inflicted wounds on themselves, piercing themselves repeatedly. That's Paul's line of argument. If you're focusing on anything but the gospel of Christ, you're headed for trouble because you misunderstand what godliness is all about. So what do we do about that? What do we do with Paul's correction here? Let me make just a few suggestions by way of application. Number one, make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There are a lot of fine arguments going around Corinth, but Paul said, no, 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 only Jesus. I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Make much of Jesus and what he's done for you. I think of Noni waving off this political discussion and wanting to talk only about Jesus. And I would love to be known as someone like her who wants to bring up Jesus more than any other subject. Make much of him. The second thing we can do with it is have done with lesser things. Make much of him and have done with lesser things. At the Leadership Summit a couple of weeks ago, we did an exercise together that I thought maybe I'd just kind of nutshell for you here this morning. It was an exercise that focused on concentric circles. We started with a really big circle, filled uh, the flip chart page pretty much that, that we were on, and that circle is things we can discuss, things we can discuss. We can discuss most anything, Right? Uh, There's another circle in from that, and and that is things that we will disagree on. We we can discuss anything. We won't agree on everything, but hopefully we can disagree agreeably on those things that we disagree on. Uh, There is another circle inside of that one, and that is things that uh, we uh, need simply to decide. Some things just require a decision. Uh, Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My wife and I took that stand when we established our home. And one of the things that flows out of that is we give thanks before meals. We've had lots of people into our home, and like it or not, uh, we will give thanks before our meals. Uh, We do the same thing when we're out in public. That's just a decision we have made, and if someone who is with us is uncomfortable, I guess they have decisions they need to make as well. There's another circle inside of that one, and that is things that we will divide over. If you try to influence somebody I love in the wrong direction, we will part company. When my mother was widowed and was beginning to decline in health herself, uh, we brought in some help uh, so that they could be with her in in the house and she could stay in her home. And I remember visiting her once and overhearing a conversation between one helper and my mom in the kitchen and the woman was basically trying to make my mom a Jehovah's Witness. And I just came straight into the kitchen and said, that's it. We divide company over this. We will divide over this. We'll go our separate ways over this. Don't try to influence somebody I love in the wrong direction. There's a final circle at the heart of it all, and that is the things that I would die for. There are very few of those. I would die for my faith in Jesus. I would die defending my family. When I was in the military, I agreed that I would give my life for my country if it came down to that. There are very few things that I would die for, but they're very real. So those five circles have been a helpful tool for me. I want to be careful what I put into each of those five circles. I want to make sure I'm not elevating something beyond the circle that it belongs in. Now, one of the questions for further thought in your program asks you to list some issues that you're aware of, things that we talk about from day to day. and identify what circle it ought to go into. We did that at the summit. And it might be a helpful thing for all of us just to do. And I would suggest being careful with what you elevate beyond the circle of disagreeing agreeably. At the summit, we tried to come up with some plumb lines for the core values of, of River Hill's uh, core, uh plumb lines are, are specific statements that help us live out each of those core values. We divided into groups, and different groups worked on different core values. And one group worked with core value number two that says this, we believe that loving relationships should permeate every aspect of a Christ follower's life. We aim for people to find friends and feel at home in our church. So one plumb line that that group suggested in terms of uh, living out that core value said this: "Our fellowship with one another will focus on our shared bond with Christ, rather than any other affinity, social, political, etc. I think that's a good plumb line. Focus on what binds us together, the gospel, rather than on the things that drive us apart. Don't let the things that we can disagree agreeably over, become die-for issues. When we let lesser things occupy our focus, we get away from our mission of declaring the greatness of God. Making much of Jesus so that people will put their trust in him. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. So make much of Jesus, have done with lesser things. Third, remember Paul's formula. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Uh, G plus C equals GG. Okay, you can write a little shorthand for it. If you've got a life wholly surrendered to God, and if you have enough to keep you going from day to day as you go about serving him, you've got all you need. Tina and I were in Wausau a couple days ago. And I stopped by this monument's place where several months ago we ordered our tombstone. Just checked on progress. Next time I'm in Wausau, I think it'll be done. It's coming along nicely. It's got our names and our birth dates on it. But the main thing it's got on it is Philippians chapter one, verse 21. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the witness We want people to see when they come through the cemetery someday. I want to live a life surrendered to Christ as long as he gives me breath and as long as he gives me what I need from day to day to do it and to be content with that until he brings me home. And that leads to the fourth application, be content. Be content. Be satisfied in your Savior. You have all you need in him. I learned an important lesson 25 years ago from a little old lady on her deathbed. Just Jesus. Just talk about Jesus. He's all you need. Find your contentment in him. Pray with me, will you? Father, Thank you that in Jesus we have all we need. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of that fact. Help us to make much of Jesus. Help us to have done with lesser things and to find our contentment in him. In his name, amen.